Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 2, Episode 5, The Mandate of Heaven, Part 2. While 475 BCE is the date most historians agree upon to mark the beginning of the Warring States period, it was not the end of the Zhou entirely. Stripped of his power and used mostly as a figurehead for ambitious warlords, the Zhou dynasty would continue technically existing for another 219 years. In the meantime, the other states would make war upon one another for centuries until finally a victor would emerge and claim the throne for themselves. There were over a dozen states that fought during the warring state periods, but we're going to focus on the seven largest and most powerful states to contend for total conquest of China. Starting in the north were the Yan, Zhao, and Qi states, just south of them is the Wei state, then, dominating a large portion of the east lay the Chu state. Likewise, dominating a vast stretch of western plains was the Qin state. And the Han state was sandwiched in between those two mega-regions, surrounded on all sides by hostile interests. We don't need to recount every battle or every shift in power, but let's take a look at the historical highlight reel. At the beginning of the period, there was another state called Jin, but it was already on its way out because, like the Zhou themselves, they had split their land into fiefs and given them to subordinates who now rebelled. Thus, from 453 to 403 BCE, after 50 years of fighting the remnant of Jin loyalists and occasionally scrapping with one another, the Zhao, Wei, and Han states were born and received official recognition from the Zhou king. There were lots of battles in the meantime, but the next major event comes in 356 BCE, when Duke Kong of the noble house of Zhang, ruler of the Qi state, died without an heir. A member of the house of Tian claimed leadership over the Qi state, and in 344 BCE he styled himself the King of Qi, making clear his intention to declare independence from the Zhou dynasty and rule outright as an equal. King Wei's successors would continue using the title of king. Another noble would decide he would rather be called king as well in 344 BCE, and Marquis Hui now became King Hui of the Wei state. Wei's status as a kingdom would be short-lived, however, when in 341 BCE they were defeated in several battles by the state of Qin and would have to rely on the kingdom of Qi to protect them. The state of Qin had, for the first 130 years, managed to avoid battle with the other states, for the most part, as they were nestled in the west, far from court. In 356 BCE, Duke Xiao of Qin poached a mid-level administrator from the state of Wei by offering him the big promotion of Prime Minister of Qin. This man is known as Shang Yang, and he was about to set into motion some critical events which would lead, many years after his death, to the reunification of China. We'll talk more about Shang Yang's philosophy later this season, 
But for the purposes of this episode, we'll focus on his military reforms. The constant fighting had resulted nationwide in a reduction in population. To fill the ranks of the Qin army, he conscripted huge numbers of peasant farmers, then had his agents encourage the peasants from neighboring provinces to emigrate, promising them better working conditions. This was a brilliant political maneuver that fortified the Qin state while weakening its rival neighbors. Xiangyang's many reforms would eventually be used as part of the foundation of a philosophy called legalism, which focused on strictly defined laws and relatively harsh consequences. Duke Xiao's son, Hui Wen, never forgave Xiangyang for the humiliation he suffered in being punished for some offense with the same punishment which a commoner would receive. As soon as he ascended the throne in 338 BCE, Duke Hui Wen ordered the former prime minister executed. It seemed that Hui Wen was smart enough to know when something was working, so he kept Shang's reforms in place, regardless of his personal dislike for the man. By 325 BCE, some 13 years after Shang Yang's execution, Duke Hui Wen felt secure enough to adopt for himself the title of king, thus cementing Qin's status as an independent kingdom. For the next hundred years, there would be alliances, betrayals, huge dramatic battles, and the Qin state would emerge victorious, eventually conquering all six of the other states and uniting China under the rule of Emperor Qin Shi Huang in 221 BCE. You may have noticed that I haven't used the title of emperor up until now, preferring the title of king to describe the leaders of the Shang and Zhou dynasties. The word we translate as king in this case is Tianzi, meaning son of heaven. The title we translate as emperor is Huangdi, which means august divine ruler. Chinese emperors would continue to use Huangdi as one of their titles until the abdication of the last emperor in 1911 CE. The latter part of the Zhou dynasty and the ensuing Warring States period was something of a boom time for philosophers, as the chaos of the era made people eager to find a theory of governance that was both relevant and effective for their lives. The teachings of the famous philosophers of the previous autumn and spring period, specifically the civic philosophy of Confucius, or Kong Futsu, as he should be known, along with the spiritual teachings of Lao Tzu, known as Taoism, began gaining popular followings. The Warring States period seems to be the most likely time when the classic work The Art of War was finished, though the timeline for that book is a bit messy, as the text refers to several types of weapons which didn't yet exist at the time of its alleged writing. The Qin state had risen to power through the use of strict legalism, and while they invited existing scholars to join the state apparatus, they saw independent philosophers as an open threat against their system. 
Thus, they issued an edict that all independent scholars must give up their books they had collected, which contained competing philosophies, so that the authorities could destroy those books. Any scholars who refused to do so were executed. According to the Han Dynasty sources written a hundred years later, the scholars who refused to give up their books were buried alive. However, most historians doubt the veracity of this account, noting that the author of that story had ample motivation to defame the Qin Dynasty. Some scholars were executed during the Qin reign, no doubt, just not by quite such a savage and horrific method. Qin Shi Huang's rule was far from uncontested, and he survived three separate assassination attempts. His leadership greatly expanded the power of the Chinese state. First, he engaged in military expansion projects, which were useful for uniting the people against an external enemy. Second, he divided the nation into 36 commanderies and appointed Qin loyalists as leaders. The assassination attempts, constant rebellions, and no doubt the stress of being the man at the top all contributed to Qin Shi Huang's paranoia and declining mental health. In 210 BCE, he died either from an aggressive illness or, somewhat poetically, from ingesting pills full of mercury, which Chinese alchemists believed was an elixir of immortality. Although the Qin dynasty's legacy would influence China for thousands of years, it was a rather short-lived ruling house. Three years after Qin Shi Huang's death, his son, Qin Er Shi, was forced to commit suicide after his tyrannical tendencies finally caught up to him. To be specific, he was in the habit of executing anyone who brought him bad news, as well as soldiers and generals who lost battles. As the Qin dynasty collapsed, China was plunged once more into chaos and contention. Two rebel leaders emerged who would battle over control of the nation for years, Shang Yu of the Chu state and Lu Bang of the Han state. At first it appeared that Shang Yu and his Chu compatriots had won, but Lu Bang and his allies whose lives were actively being endangered by Shang Yu's tendency to assassinate rivals, rebelled at the first opportunity. After four more years of fighting, in 202 BCE, Lu Bang was crowned Emperor Gaozu of Han, and thus the Han Dynasty was established. The Han Dynasty attempted to meld the most successful parts of the Qin Dynasty with popular contemporary policies inspired by the growing school of Confucianism. Specifically, the Confucianist push toward education-based meritocracy over hereditary office-holding. They reduced taxes nationwide and made up for the budget shortfall by disbanding large segments of the military which were no longer needed now that there was peace. Emperor Gaozi established a central corps of commanderies under direct imperial control in the West, as well as ten semi-autonomous vassal state kingdoms in the East which were given as gifts to his most loyal and prominent supporters. 
Taking a page from Qin Shi Huang's playbook, the Han would later embark on a massive expansionist policy, eventually invading and occupying the northern half of the Korean peninsula, which they divided into four commanderies. In the south, the empire eventually stretched as far as Vietnam. In addition to the outright military invasions, they also sent diplomatic missions to exchange goods and, when possible, entangle themselves in local politics. The rulers and enforcers of Han China believed that China was unique and special among their neighbors, whom they generally referred to as barbarians. Their cultivation of philosophy, government, and even military technology justified, in their minds, the subjugation of the neighbors they saw as primitive peoples scratching out a bare living on the periphery. Surely the mandate of heaven was a universal principle which could be applied to every nation. And wouldn't those nations benefit from having an enlightened, principled, and glorious ruler like our emperor? Han records indicate that they had contact with Japan since at least 108 BCE through their North Korean Lelong commandery, and they were likely sending one another diplomatic delegations since before that time. In 57 CE, as we've already discussed, the Han emperor sent a delegation to the state of Nakoku, established on northern Kyushu, sending a golden royal seal as an official recognition of their kingdom. Han agents spanned far and wide, and to their west they made contact with the Parthian Empire, various kingdoms of India, and even the Roman Empire. These visits resulted in a mutual gift-giving, and the emissaries would return with exotic gifts which the Han ruler could give to those aristocrats whose loyalty he wished to secure, or even pass them along to leaders in their more immediate frontier. This tendency to meddle in foreign affairs was not limited to invasion and occupation. There is evidence that the Han representatives occasionally plotted to assassinate rulers of so-called barbarian nations in order to place more friendly locals on the throne. We'll come to one such incident toward the end of this season, which involves one of the most famous rulers in Japanese history. In the mid-first century of the Common Era, Buddhism spread to China, beginning its ascendancy in the Far East. Every culture that adopted Buddhism added their own personal flair to its practice, as is always the case with new religions, and Chinese Buddhism would have such a distinctively Taoist flavor that the ancient historians refer to the two religions almost interchangeably. The empire was not without its problems, however. In 9 CE, an ambitious regent named Wang Mang poisoned the 13-year-old emperor and, after a show of trying to find a suitable heir, declared himself the only person qualified to take control. He tried to found his own dynasty during this naked power grab, the Xin dynasty. But 14 years later, in 23 CE, Han loyalist forces finally organized alongside several popular uprisings and seized the capital of Chang'an by force and killed the usurper. The period before Wang Mang is referred to as the Western Han Dynasty and the period thereafter as the Eastern Han Dynasty. 
Eventually, the Han Empire would collapse, as it seems most empires do. Their far-flung commanderies, once a point of pride at how far their influence was spreading, began to periodically engage in mutiny and open rebellion as various generals fancied themselves kings. As mentioned previously, this tumultuous infighting caused political shifts in Japan and Korea, as it would disrupt the flow of trade goods which clan chieftains and regional kings depended upon for earning and keeping the loyalty of their people. In 220 CE, after several periods of collapse, restoration, rebellion, recollapse, re-restoration, the Han Dynasty would fall for the last time, never to rise again. Over the course of 422 years of semi-centralized rule, China gradually reverted to regional sovereignty once more, dividing into the three kingdoms of Wei, Shu, and Wu, each claiming the mandate of heaven for themselves. Next time, we will take a look at the contemporary developments on the Korean Peninsula. Until then, thank you for listening. Please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash a history of Japan. Thank <laughs> you.